Hey, good evening there. How are you? How was your weekend, more importantly? Did you have a nice one? I bet you did. Thanks for joining me this Monday, the 7th of November, 2022. It's the Richie Allen Show. What else would it be? I've got Rachel Elnaw, the one of the founding members of Dragon's Den, returning to the programme. Entrepreneur, successful lady, all-round good person is Rachel. She's going to be talking to us this hour about possibly running for Parliament here in the northwest of the country, more like the Peak District. A little bit later on, the nurse Jenny Lowe's will be on the line to us from Portugal. She's much more than that. I'll tell you more about her a little bit later on. It's Monday's programme. As usual, I'm chuffed to bits to be here. So I am. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Yeah, Rachel Elno is also inviting people to join her in Derbyshire on the 17th of this month, which I think is a week on Thursday. We'll talk about that with her and more as well. If you'd like to join in, the way to do it is the same way it's always been. Go to the website, richieallen.co.uk. Let me know what you're thinking about the things we're speaking about on the programme tonight. I really want to hear your thoughts, your ideas. Your gripes, tell me. Right then, as usual, there's such an amount to get through in the first half an hour. I'd better crack right on with it. Did you have a good weekend? when When I ask that question, I do mean it. Let me know. Hey, COP27 is upon us, God save us and keep us. The United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, is a fan of ACDC, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, enough of that. And the reason we're on a highway to hell, says Antonio Gutierrez, is because we're not doing enough to deal with the goddamn climate crisis. Here he is, giving his keynote address to COP27 at Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt today. Gutierrez, listen up. Be afraid. Be absolutely petrified. In just days, our planet's population will cross a new threshold. The 8 billionth member of our human family will be born. The 8 billionth baby is about to be born. These milestone in Ballymun puts into perspective what this climate conference is all about. How will we answer when baby 8 billion is old enough to ask? Yeah, I can imagine somebody turning 25. Hey, listen, I'm baby 8 billion. What the fuck did you do to the climate? What did you do for our world and for our planet when you had the chance? Excellencies, this UN Climate Conference is a reminder that the answer is in our hands. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of... That isn't Gino De Campo, by the way. It is Antonio Gutierrez from the United Nations. ...fight of our lives and we are losing. We're losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Ecosystems keep collapsing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points. Tipping. That will make climate chaos irreversible. Irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell. (sighs) 
with our foot still on the accelerator. Yes. Yes. We're on a highway to hell. Then it got even more threatening, you could argue. Listen to this. Humanity has a choice. Cooperate or perish. It is either a climate solidarity pact or a collective suicide pact. Wow. It's either a climate solidarity pact or a climate suicide pact. He's not messing, is he? He's basically saying comply or die. Bit of Ed 209 there, Robocop. Peter Weller. Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven. In a comply or die. Do what you're told. Starve yourselves. Freeze yourselves to death. Don't fucking touch that thermostat. It stays on 19 degrees. Wash your clothes at 20 degrees. Smell like a hobo. Murder your pets. The carbon-creating little critters must go. Do not drive anywhere. No more holidays for you. Or you will die. That's basically the gist of it. There is a direct relationship, of course, between the doomsday prophecies of Antonio Gutierrez and Little Louise. Do you know who Little Louise is? You don't? Little Louise climbed up a gantry on the M25 this morning and brought the traffic to a fucking standstill. So she did. Then she had a good old cathartic ball. That's B-A-W-L. She had a good old ball Good old cry. And then she told us why. Here's little Louise. Hello, my name is Louise. I'm 24 years old. And I'm here. I'm here because I don't have a future. She doesn't have a future. And you might hate me for doing this. And you're entitled to hate me. But I wish you would direct all that anger and hatred. Nobody hates you. Nobody's angry with you, you little loony. Our government... They are betraying young people like me. I would love to be there if they did their lawful duty to their own citizens. I'm part of the Just Stop Oil Coalition demanding an end to all new oil and gas licenses in the UK. What we're asking for is what all the scientists are asking for, what the United Nations are asking for, the international energy, the IPCC. How many more people have to say, we don't have a livable future if you continue licensing oil and gas for you to listen? Why does it take young people like me up on a fucking gantry on the M25? Up on a fucking gantry on the M25! Before you listen. For you to listen. Yeah. That was little Louise there. It's gone viral today. Apparently Louise has a Twitter account and has been trolled unmercifully because of her performance on the M25 gantry this morning. Is she mad, Louise? I don't know. I've written a little bit about this on the website. As usual, my attempt to analyse this stuff is very... My attempt to analyse... To break down the personality of somebody like Louise, it's always very clumsy when I attempt to do it. Madness doesn't quite cut it psychologically attacked, yes. No doubt about it. This is psychological warfare on young people, isn't it? That's why it doesn't doesn't always feel right to be taking the piss out of them, but yet I find myself doing it anyway. Um, is she mad? Simon Lewis is a professor of global sciences at Leeds University. You'll hear him now after Sky News presenter Sarah Jane Mee asks him a question about little Louise. Um- you know, she's facing a lot of, I've, I've looked at it, she's facing a lot of ridicule and criticism online. And, you know, that's easy for people to do, but I just wonder how that video is going to age and in 10, 20, 30 years' time. When we're all melting, 
Sarah Jane is saying. I wonder how it'll age because in 10, 20 years' time when we're all melting in 55 degree temperatures, we'll be saying, Jesus, little Louise was right, that loony on top of the gantry. If only we listened to little Louise. How people are going to watch that video and go, why didn't, why didn't they take her more seriously? Yeah. Why, did they, why did they just see her as an annoyance on our, our commute <laughs> to work? It's just a thought. You know, I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, This is uh, Professor Simon Lewis, Leeds University. Uh, I, I, I think the people who are at the forefront of, of, of calling out to move away from this incredibly destructive path that we're on uh, are, are going to be seen as no, nothing short of heroes. Heroes? The same way as we see the people who stood up against slavery. Yeah, but hang on, slavery was a real thing. Uh, or the women who fought for universal suffrage. Yeah, women fighting for the right to vote and for other rights, those were real things, actually tangible, tangible, I shouldn't say agendas, tangible causes, like real causes. They were real, like, you know. You know, women genuinely had a grievance, like. Slaves, you know, people who were forced to work in bondage for other people, they had a proper grievance. This is real stuff, like. We see them as heroes. They were vilified at the time by people who were more comfortable with the status quo. Maybe Just Stop Oil will throw themselves collectively under a horse at the next Derby meeting. Epsom Downs, maybe. And what I think we need to remember about uh, uh, protests of all different types and persua uh, persuasions, whether it's writing letters all the way through to direct action, is that governments move when they're pressed. And Richie Sunak was not going to come to COP. He was too busy. He was too busy to deal with the biggest crisis that humanity has ever faced. <laughs> Anyway, yes, Rishi Sunak is there in Egypt and at some stage today is giving or has already given a speech about the threat of anthropogenic climate change. Anywho, Nick Thomas Simons is the Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade, right? He's the Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade, Nick Thomas Simons. He was on talk radio this morning with Julia Hartley Brewer and it isn't unkind to say that he got a little bit of a spanking. Have a listen. So Ed mentioned Pakistan, for example, in that... He's talking about Ed Miliband, who's Labour's climate change guy. You remember Ed Miliband, who once led the Labour Party after he knifed his brother David Miliband in the back and stood for the leadership? Well, Ed Miliband these days is jetting around the world to warn us all about climate change. And he's been speaking in the last day or two about how... How could anybody not believe this? I mean, I mean Pakistan-like. Okay, so Nick Thomas Simons here is referencing what Ed Miliband said about Pakistan and the floods and climate change. So Ed mentioned Pakistan, for example, in that interview. Pakistan's been under, you know, 30% of its territory has been underwater and smaller, low-lying island states like, for example, the Maldives. Now, uh, can, I, can I stop you there? Um, the Maldives are not sinking, I, 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 which is coming. Maldives are constantly brought up as, a, as, a, as an island nation that is sinking. There's, there's no evidence for that uh, statement. But, but also, Pakistan, as one of my guests earlier, and we'll be speaking to a green guest after nine o'clock. We'll put all points of view on this show. Um, Pakistan has always had floods and, and taking over large parts of the country. Um, there's no particular evidence, none that I have seen, that suggests that this is getting worse or as a result of climate change. I've yet to see any evidence for that produced for that statement. I'm delighted that she pulled Nick Thomas Simon's trousers down metaphorically and whacked him across the arse with a rattan cane. 
And don't forget, last week we had the brilliant David Sedgwick on this programme. He's got a book out called Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? And very early on in this excellent book, which I highly recommend, he talks about the BBC warning that the Maldives would be underwater and everybody would have to leave it uh, 20 years ago. This is a paradise faced with extinction, writes David in uh, Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? Well done to Brewer for calling out that whopper of a lie. The Maldives is going nowhere. It's going nowhere. For that statement. Well, well, at the moment, the global global warming is at about 1.2%. We want to... See how he deflects what she said to him about there being absolutely no evidence. That this is getting worse or as a result of climate change. I've yet to see any evidence for that produced for that statement. Yeah. Well, well, at the moment, at the, the global, moment, global warming is at about 1.2%. We want to try and cap that at 1.5 by the end of the decade. And the science shows that about 50% of the increase has come since the 1980s. In terms of low-lying island states, they are vulnerable, of course, logically, to rising sea levels. And the point about... Well, the point about that is, Nick, is that if you spent the next 1,500 fucking years warning that low-lying islands might be underwater, eventually you will be right. Eventually, man. You know, at what point do we do we justifiably ignore your claims about sea level rises, uh, sea level rises even swamping countries? At what point do we say, Jesus, these bastards have been telling us for 35, 40 years that the Maldives and other islands are going to be under three feet of water, and in fact they're not. They're thriving. You see? 1.5 degrees, by the way. I'm not suggesting it's a cliff edge, but I'm suggesting, which also the science suggests, that there'd be an increased frequency of extreme uh, climate. There is a po- they, 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 I- she destroys this now. This is quite good by Julia Hartley Brewer, who's come in for some criticism from, well, from us in the independent media. What she does here is very good. He's trying to equate climate change, human... Um, induced climate change with a an increase in so-called natural disasters. But either Julia Hartley Brewer or her producer has done their homework. This is good. The, the IPCC report suggests that there, there is a, a possibility that is the case. It is not, again, what, what is said in the political documents, written in the summaries and what goes into the media, isn't necessarily what is backed up in the scientific reports that underline those IPCC reports um, in terms of the likelihood of that. We've not seen to date, despite all of that global warming, we have not seen an increase overall in in any of those climate disasters. That that that, that those and, we, and in terms of the number of deaths from those disasters, it's plummeted by ninety five percent since the early nineteen hundreds. So why are we concerned about it? Hugely important that in terms of deaths from so called disasters, weather disasters or climate disasters, there has been a ninety five percent increase over the last 100 years, excuse me, Jesus, decrease, 95% decrease in the last century. Why should we pay any attention to these warnings? This is good stuff by Brewer. Well, there have been, I mean, when you're talking talking about deaths from Mm. uh, natural disasters, unfortunately, we've had huge earthquakes and other things in the past, so that's not necessarily uh, a statistic, but but hang on, Julie. We still have earthquakes. There is, of course. And They're I, not climate-related. No, no, no. I, I totally agree with you about... The, but the point I'm making... No, he totally agrees with her. The point I'm making to you is that the stats about the number of deaths from natural disasters 
will go up and down over time. It's not indicative. They've gone down by 95% since uh, since 1900 at a time when the pop- world population has quadrupled since that. Yeah, but, but the point I'm making to you is that there have always been natural disasters and, and they always will be. Related. Of course, of course. Nobody is saying there isn't. But the point I'm making to you is that... It's they- a massive lie. Do I have to keep saying that? And not to you, because I think you know that. Is it worth my while saying this is the biggest lie? It's not a hoax, this. This is a lie. And the clear and present danger to humanity is not climate change, but it is the media. It's the media. It is the presenters and the reporters who know that this is a massive lie, but who keep pushing it into your living rooms, into your earpieces, into your smartphones, day in and day out. And and I, I, I'm pretty sure I'll take some criticism for that. Um, but I want to make it absolutely clear. That's not an incitement for anybody to do anything. I remain committed to, as committed today, to non-violent means of dealing with this situation, as I ever have. But, but the clear and present danger, your mortal enemy, is the news media, is the BBC in particular, pushing this, knowing where this leads. This leads to the impoverishment, and I have to say, without being melodramatic, to the deaths of millions and millions of people. And I know... I can hear you. I can hear your brain take over. You're saying, well, Baldy, that's the plan, isn't it? Depopulation. There isn't a shred of evidence. Ask them about, about subter- not subterranean, ask them about sub-sea level vol- volcanoes under the Arctic Circle. Ask them about decomposition. Ask them about respiration. Ask them about decomposition. Well, every day on planet Earth, billions of things uh plant life, animal life small, big decomposing, breaking up naturally, releasing CO2 into the atmosphere how much of the global warming that you're saying is happening today is caused by that as opposed to human activity and they can't tell you. Now you've got to listen to that. That's the, this, this is the fact that destroys the entire hoax, the whole, let's not call it a hoax it's a lie. Ask them all the other sources of CO2 on the planet, I've named them, decomposition, the oceans, right? right? Obviously the oceans, I didn't mention the oceans. Respiration and all of that. How much of that is contributing to the warming of the planet as opposed to the warming that you're blaming human activity for? They can't tell you. If you ask them how much CO2, what percentage of the atmosphere is made up of CO2, they'll tell you it's 0.04%. 0.04%. Four one hundredths of a percent. Imagine that, of the atmosphere. Then ask them how much of that has been, uh, is human made. How much of that comes from human activity, they can't tell you. Ask them about the sun and the theory that CO2 follows heat, heat doesn't follow CO2 and they won't talk to you about that either, none of them. This, this, is, this, is, this is the agenda now. I, I don't say forget your, your, your pandemic hoaxes and, and, and that sort of stuff because I don't think those things have gone away entirely but this is the game now from here on in, this climate hoax. To listen to the language of Antonio Gutierrez today in, in Sharm al-Sheikh, just listen to this again. Humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. It is Cooperate or perish. Again, Loosely translated, and it isn't unfair, do what you are told 
or you will die. It's either a climate solidarity pact or a collective suicide pact. And they're talking today about reparations for countries. You may have seen this. I'm sure you have seen it. It was uh, announced overnight. The Telegraph had the exclusive, didn't it, this morning, that some of the UK delegation in Egypt last night conceded that the UK would have to accept paying reparations to developing nations uh, to pay for uh, the part that we've all played in their climate disasters. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. This is vaudevillian. You couldn't make it up. We in the UK, just going about our business you know, working nine to five, putting a bit of food on the table, paying the bills, trying to pay off the mortgage. What we've been doing all along in reality is, is we've been causing weather disasters in sub-Saharan Africa. Can you believe that? And Rishi Sunak is going to sign up to a pledge to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on these countries that we, you and me, and everybody else around us, that we've wrecked because of our own carbon creation, because of the way we've gone about our business in the last 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever, whatever it is, years. This is tantamount to madness that anybody would believe this. But yet they do believe it. Listen to little Louise again. Um, not to over-egg this, but just listen to this. Hello, they, they my believe name it. is Louise. I'm 24 years old and I'm here... It's um, it's it's mad. It's twenty one and a half minutes past the hour. This is Monday's Richie Allen show, November seventh, twenty twenty two. Rachel Elno should be standing by. We'll get her on for a chat. I'm really looking forward to that. It's about a year since Rachel was on uh, the program last. She's in the Peak District area or thereabouts. She's announced on her YouTube channel that she's thinking very strongly, if not definitely going ahead with it to uh, run for Parliament next time there is a general election in this country. A uh, very quick break back in a minute with uh, plenty of more. Cold, plenty more. seasonal flu and respiratory diseases. We all get them. Never before have your body's defences been under such constant attack. Now more than ever it's essential to have a robust immune system. Inspired by the Zelenko Protocol, Immunex 365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin. Immunex 365 has been specific formulated to maximize the effect of each ingredient, giving your immune system an optimum boost. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. UK listeners of The Richie Allen Show can use their special 15% discount code RICHIEALLEN365 at checkout. Go to immunex365.co.uk to get yours now. Now with two-day track delivery free. Okay, welcome back. It's time for a tune. Here's OREM. And on the other side of this, Rachel Elno. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Comment on the programme at the website richieallen.co.uk. Comment live. That is OREM and what's uh, the frequency, Kenneth? 25 and a half minutes past five. The Richie Allen Show live from Salford. Super Salford. It's Grim Hoop North. It's bloody grim today. My guest this hour needs very little introduction to you. Um, she'll always be known uh, for many things, but always be known as one of the founding members of the iconic Dragon's Den television program. Very successful businesswoman, entrepreneur. Uh, she's in the Peak District uh, area, Derbyshire, these days. She's been on the program before. It's a real pleasure to welcome back Rachel Elnor. Welcome back, Rachel. How are you? Oh, hi, Richie. Yes, good. 
Lovely to Thank have you. you on. Loads to get through between now and six o'clock. Before we talk about the possibility of you throwing your hat, as it were, into the uh, political ring, we've got to talk about something you've got going on on the 17th of this month, which I think is a week on Thursday. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we've got a, um, a meeting by the people for the people at Bakewell Town Hall. And uh, I'm going to be speaking along with Jonathan Tilt, who is the uh, leader of the Freedom Alliance. And I'm, um, I'm going to be standing as their candidate for the Derbyshire Dales constituency, throwing my hat in the ring uh, into the sort of political process, really as a way, as another way of opening conversations and kind of pattern interrupting and waking people up who just don't realise the extent to which politics is controlled by big corporate interests these days. Yeah, that's very good. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So what will be on the agenda now on the 17th? What sort of things will you be talking about? Um, Presumably, I suppose, going into this winter and the dangers that maybe things that happened last year and the year before might happen again. Is that the kind of thing you'll be talking about? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is to draw people's attention to what is unfolding and the dangers. Obviously, we've got huge issues that are looming, um, scarcity, rising uh, energy prices, more jabs, you know. you know. So it, it really is to, uh, to create a, a sort of captive audience to wake people up And we will also have an open discussion um, with everyone who's there. So it will be a a chance for a public debate rather than just listening to speakers. But obviously, you know, I I feel very passionately about the whole issue of freedom. And uh, because we are headed into a kind of totalitarian nightmare future if we don't stand up and say no. You've taken a few hits, Rachel, haven't you? Since we first met, I mean, we met because obviously you've got a public profile. A lot of people know who you are. And you you dared to kind of venture out and speak about these things. You took some proper flack for this, didn't you, over the last couple of years? Yeah, I have. I, I think all of us who have spoken out in some way or another have taken flack. But actually, the worst flack of recent times of like literally the past weeks and months has actually from been from within the liberation movement itself. There seems to be an absolute uh, sort of turning in on itself of people calling me a shill and controlled opposition and that this uh, standing uh, for mem to be a member of parliament is just an ego trip you know yeah so it's not helpful at all this division this divisiveness now whether it's whether it's people who are being planted within the freedom movement to try to create maximum disruption or whether it's people who just don't get that actually we really need to be unifying as opposed to dividing and attacking one another, you know. So yeah. it's it's a disturbing trend that I'm noticing. Even people like David Icke, I've noticed him being called controlled opposition a lot lately, which is shocking to me, you know. I'll tell you what I think. I've observed this for years. I won't get into this too much because some of my listeners will be yawning now, not at you, Rachel, but at me, because I've observed this in the past. It's never come my way because I'm not a researcher. I'm not an activist, I'm just a journalist, so I've never had to kind of deal with it. I think a lot of it is rooted in jealousy. It's it's that old, ugly human trait, jealousy. When somebody puts themselves out there and they 
you know, they, I don't know, maybe catch a hold of the zeitgeist, for want of a better way of putting it. And they get on with people and they're personable, as you ob- obviously are. Um, it doesn't suit certain people. They get jealous and then you get the old nonsense of, oh, shill, controlled opposite. It's just nonsense. And the best thing yeah. to do with it is ignore it. But then, you know, how dare I give you any advice? I'm sure you do ignore it anyway. But I think it's rooted a lot of it in just plain old jealousy. Well, maybe, perhaps that is the case, but I just think it's quite damaging um, to the movement as a whole. We really need to be pulling together because I'm not the enemy. There's a far bigger enemy out there that all of us need to focus our energy on pulling together and standing strong in the face of that. That's my feeling. Rachel, you live in a lovely part of the world and you you, you will have neighbours who, like yourself, like yourself, they will have had you know, success in one field or another. And I wouldn't dare suggest that, you know, people who have had success or who have done well are brighter or brainier than the rest of us. It's not about that, but there's there's certainly, I don't know, an etiquette or a kind of a way of behaving. If I get into that, I'll get into serious soup, so I'll just stop right there. The question I wanted to ask you was, do, have you noticed a change in your own, and I know you're kind of isolated, but in the people who live in that part of the world, is are, are they more open-minded to some of the things you've been talking about, you know, in the last couple of years? Is there kind of a realisation that, God, our neighbour, Rachel, is not, you know, she's not having a moment here. This stuff is actually going on. Have you noticed any of that? <laughs> well, Derbyshire Dales is a very conservative, yeah. traditional uh, area. And... When I first started speaking out, I was actually living out at Yulegrave and there was almost like a witch hunt of like I was the local kind of witch that needed to be put in the stocks and had tomatoes thrown at me. I mean, it was shock and horror that I was actually, you know, wandering around Lathkill Dale making these videos. So there was a lot of outrage. And I think that most people are so in the system they're so in the mind control program they, they probably only consume mainstream media totally believe what the bbc pumps out so they when someone actually says hold on a minute like and questions it there's a huge cognitive dissonance and we're i'm noticing this at stand in the park and from from various other sources is that quite often what it's taking to wake people up is actually a family tragedy I hate to say that, but some that that is the wake the big wake up call for people who were previously fully compliant. Of hold on a minute, like my mum just died of a heart attack within days of having the jab, or you know my wife has got blood clots within weeks of of having the jab. So th- that's the sad thing is that it's taking that level of personal tragedy for people to actually question what's unfolding. Very good point that and. I, I do remember hearing a few weeks back on definitely on Sky News and probably on BBC Radio 4 but they they were expressing alarm that the over 55s were showing a reluctance to come forward and have the fourth jab and I wondered Rachel just as you said there if this was down to over 55s thinking well hang on a second I know somebody who had that jab and, and became unwell and would you believe it over the weekend I do watch live sport for, for my sins. There was another collapse in in the crowd at a football match at the weekend. And I'm th- the first, to be honest, and say I don't know why 
that collapse happened. It could have been anything. I have to accept that. But I've been watching football for 35, 40 years, Rachel. We've never seen such an avalanche of commentators yeah. saying, oh, the players are coming off now for a moment because somebody has become ill in the crowd. This is almost every other week now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'm noticing popping up everywhere is defibrillators. I don't know if you've noticed that. I have. So almost every every wall has got some defibrillator attachment, and it's kind of like they're it's almost like they're normalising heart attacks. Can't believe you said that. I run around Media City some of my running mornings, and this morning I ran around Media City in Salford. And as I'm leaving it, coming out. The I suppose you'd have to say the 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 western kind of exit there, there was a brand new def, defibrillator. I can barely say it, hanging up with you know a list of instructions and who to call. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're appearing everywhere, and and then you you see all of these uh, these ridiculous media uh, stories of like I don't know sleeping with a duvet and getting too hot will cause a heart attack or eating too many crisps or whatever the ridiculous yeah. thing is, you know. It's just like, are people stupid enough to to really to really believe this? And, and secondly, who are these journalists that are actually writing and printing this? And and when when are people going to stop being part of this pantomime? But I, I think there's, people have got too much probably got too much money at stake. They're getting a good wage a good salary, to yeah. pump out this nonsense. Do you think it's just down to salary? Because you, you worked for the BBC yourself. I had various dalliances with the BBC over the years. I never worked for them directly, but I did some things for the BBC, some regional reporting in Ireland, just a little bit of it. And when I first moved to the UK some years ago, so I, I, I had that little bit of exposure, but not, but not like you. Is it just money, though? Because you wouldn't do it for money. I wouldn't do it for money. You wouldn't push that stuff out there knowing that it was harming people, in real terms harming uh, people. Maybe there's something more going on than than money. But I, again, I couldn't even begin to speculate as to what, Rachel. Well, just, just to correct there, I, I mean, I was part of Dragon's Den, but they didn't really pay very much at all for us to do that. Yeah. Um, a nominal amount, really, in, in the context of how much time it took. But, I mean, I know several people who work for the NHS who are completely aware of what's going on and yet um, feel that they're better inside with eyes seeing what's going on than quitting. Right. That's number one thing. But unfortunately... If you work inside the beast, you have to comply. And, you know, so these people are seeing, uh, I know, people coming in with blood clots and having to have legs amputated. And it's uh, and it's all since the jabs began. So there's no doubt in anyone's mind that um, the horrific harm has been caused and it's continuing to happen. I mean, I you know, someone has to say no and, and make a stand. Here's something before we talk about, you know, you running for, for Parliament, which which is really interesting to me. Here's something I've noticed, and I, I really can't get my head around this, and this is genuine. Three people in the last couple of months have acknowledged to me that they know something is very wrong with, with the COVID story. They know something is very wrong 
with um, the jabs and, and you know, the, 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 the pressure on people to take the jabs. So this is all very good. I'm thinking these are, there's one woman in particular, she works in the NHS and she was conceding this to me in, in our local park. And I'm like, great, great. I'm thinking in my own mind because I, I never really browbeat people. I, I tend to listen rather than talk. Anyway, she said to me, yeah, and these jobs, and a bit worried. And then she said to me, minutes later, I swear, she says, um, I'm booked in for my fourth one later. And I thought, oh, my God. And my uh, partner, the the love of my life, uh, is a French woman, Caroline. Her mother is an amazing lady. This I put this in the public domain, so... She understands. She doesn't mind this. An amazing woman, very bright woman, used to work for the government. She's an accountant, very smart. And um, in her 70s now. Monique is her name. She was properly injured after the second jab. It caused blood thinning and it caused a heart problem for her. And I think her doctor conceded as such that the jab was, you know, very likely to be to be culpable. Rachel, she's had another one. I, I, wow. I, what is going on? How do you cope with that? You, if anybody knows today, you're going to be able to tell me. How do you even begin to explain that level of cognitive dissonance? Well, I think that this is the thing. It is, it is about having a level of compassion because, because there is, I mean, the, the level of PSYOP, it's military grade, isn't it? MK Ultra sort of military grade yeah. PSYOP that is, that is behind this. And, you know, there is an agenda. This is the point. You know, this is an agenda on behalf of World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, obviously funded by these big corporate interests, including Big Pharma. This is, I mean, just look at just looking at purely from a money point of view, look at how many billions and billions of pounds have been sucked away from taxpayers and countries worldwide into the coffers of big pharma around this experimental um, gene therapy injections they're not gonna they're not going to give up on that lightly and given that all of the media is controlled by the strategic partners of the world economic forum you know there is a a, a lot at stake. There's a lot of money at stake to push this program through. And obviously, as we're, we're starting to realise, these jabs are just part of a much bigger picture now with central bank digital currencies coming in, trying to remove cash, moving everything online so that it, it will ultimately become a, a technocracy. And that is the real danger here, because if if we are under that complete control and if we're controlled through money and we can't travel and we can't spend our money um, unless we we comply with whatever rules and regulations are made up or pushed through, then it is the end of freedom. And that's why you know, Freedom Alliance has got that word in the title. It, it, we ultimately are about freedom, about reclaiming our sovereignty and taking the power back to the people away from these big corporates who have bought up all the assets and ha- and are ruthless and uh, want, want to push through a one-world government, ultimately. Rachel, if you managed to win a seat for the Freedom Alliance in Derbyshire, what would that mean? How would you imagine that would work? How would you be able to use that to, um, to raise awareness about this uh, agenda, which I... 
have to say I concur completely with everything you said. The social crediting system, the technocratic society, it's all there. They've, 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 they've got the foundation of it. Now we can see that. How could you make a difference if you were to become a, an MP for a party like the Freedom Alliance? Well, I have to be realistic that under the current system of democracy, it is extremely unlikely that someone like me or any independent party outside of the big two will be elected. And this is the thing, the first past the post system and lots of parties, they have the effect of actually splitting the vote, which makes it more likely for the dominant parties, the reds or the blues to get in. And as we know, both sides are, are controlled. So really, my purpose in standing primarily is a, another way of opening the conversation of pattern interrupting, of creating awareness. But ultimately, our true power is in the people saying no. Because I, I just don't think that the way that democracy is set up until there's some kind of proportional representation, um, we're just going to have uh, government after government, which is bulldozed in by the World Economic Forum. We know that most of the world's political leaders have been trained and funded by the, the Young Leaders Programme. And, you know, that's, it, it's difficult to imagine how that can be, how we can change things through the current political system. It has to be through waking the people up and en masse saying, no, we do not consent no, we do not comply. No, we are not going to, to, um, and also to use common law. That, that's another hu uh, hugely untaught thing that the, the people do have the power because a trial by jury can nullify any legislation, jury nullification. And that's very, a very little known fact that the people can take back the power right now. We don't have to wait for a general election. So really it's more strategic than I'm standing a, as a, uh, for election as MP. It's, it's a way to, to uh, open the conversation and to, to get people's attention. Why not? Why not? Rachel Elno is our guest. We've got another 10 minutes or, or, or just a little bit more with uh, Rachel today. You'll find her on YouTube. Do check out her YouTube uh, channel. Um, we'll put links up later to uh, the website for the Freedom Alliance as well. And um, wish you good luck with that, Rachel. What, what, I, I've, I've been covering another topic, which I would argue, and I'm open to, you know, for people to disagree with me and tell me I'm wrong. I, I enjoy that. Um, I see the climate change um, thing and the claim that we're in the midst of a climate crisis. For many years, I've been banging that drum, even though I'm not an activist, I'm not a researcher, uh, just a journalist. But I, I see that as playing a really big role, again, in in uh, kind of rolling out this technocratic society you talked about, the single, uh, the, the, the uh, centralised digital currency and all of that, and some of the claims being made about um, what will happen if we don't try to reach net zero, I believe they're preposterous and unscientific, certainly unproven, but I wouldn't put words in anybody's mouth. How do you feel about that COP27 going on in Egypt today and some outlandish stuff, in my opinion, being said by the UN Secretary General about climate highway to hell and we're all going to be dead in a few years. And, um, what, what are your observations of that? Well, the irony for me is that the, this, uh, the pollution and the, um, you know, 
the pumping out CO2 into the environment over the past decades has largely been done by the very same big corporates who are now using that as uh, an excuse to command control everyone by creating this this idea that we've all got to uh, we've all got to you know stop driving our cars and not going you know not going too far beyond our homes and restricting how we live um, to somehow fix the damage that was done essentially by the very same corporate interests that now own all of these assets yeah. So it is just being used, uh, and, and this this classic thing of we've got to save, we've got to save, you know, got to save grandma, we've got to save the planet. It's classic psychological rescuer. Uh, if you if you know about yeah. uh, trauma healing, the persecutor victim rescuer drama triangle. So you create a, a persecutor and you paint people as victims and then you come in as a rescuer. So it's like, oh, the planet needs saving. We need to save the planet. You know, we need to save grandma. Take this jab. We need to save the planet. Stop driving your car. Comply with all of these things. And, and most people are very susceptible to that persecutor, victim, rescuer, drama triangle. And um, unfortunately, People are very easy to trigger, the masses. And so those of us who are awake to what is going on, it's, it is, again, it's important that we pattern interrupt this and we, <laughs> we speak out that, you know, a lot of people are going to suffer through what is unfolding. Um, and soon, a hu huge amount of suffering is, is already being caused yeah, by these soon. policies. You made a very good point as well about pollution. They have managed to successfully conflate two different problems. This idea that CO2 created by human activity is contributing to warming, which I don't believe there's any evidence for. And I've, I used to be, I used to be a, I, I was a real convert. I mean, my background would have been in journalism, but I was a lefty, so I would have believed this, you know, and I would have said, God, we're, we're ruining the planet. But then I started to look, to look into it, not prompted by anybody, certainly not by any corporations. And I don't believe that. But, but, but you're right, pollution is a serious issue. It's an absolutely, 100% a serious issue. You know, the destruction of the natural earth by pollution, by corporations, 100%. Yes. But, but two different issues, but they've managed to conflate the two of them. And they've gotten away with doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, CO2 is a, it's, it's, it's a valuable gas, isn't it? Because that is what plants... Yeah. You know, plants use CO2 and pump out oxygen and, and we use oxygen and pump out CO2, you know, so it's part of the natural cycle of things, carbon, CO2. You think when, because some of our listeners, they will say, I know they will, I'll read these comments on the website now in a few moments after we've, um, after we've powered the company for today, they'll be saying, but Rachel, Richie, do you not understand we're the carbon they want rid of? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> ultimately, yes. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? That if you, I mean, my partner is a farmer and all of his cows have to have passports. They have to have regular vaccines. Otherwise they can't be sold. No and you, when you start looking at how farming is done, you realize that the same principles of agriculture are being applied to the human race. This idea that you there's too many and we have to be culled. We have to be vaxxed and have passports you can see where it's come from 
uh, this and simply seeing as a stock to be managed. And that's why this reclamation of our rights uh, as free men and women of the land, that is so important for people to to realize that we are we all individuals as individuals, we have tremendous human rights and our, our only responsibility is to do to cause no harm, injury or loss to our fellow man and woman. And we do not and governments are there to serve us. They're purely administrative to serve us. But unfortunately, those that have won power are using it to uh, to basically command control the whole of the people on the planet. That's what's happening. And it is an agricultural mindset that is behind this, unfortunately. You've gotten me there. That's incredible. So you've observed the agricultural practices kind of forced on people like your partner. And you've seen how transferable those policies are towards animals uh, to humans. That's, yes. That's quite that's, amazing. That's, that's my observation. Yeah. And like in farming, like if you've got, if there's too many badgers, they get cold. And, yeah. you know, we've all seen all of the eugenics and the uh, even Boris Johnson himself and his father speaking out. There's too many people on the planet. The real problem is not is not the environment. It's the fact that the population is growing too fast, etc. And we're seeing at the moment, um, just, just a couple of more minutes we've got with Rachel today, lots and lots of questions and comments. But I am, we are dealing with mo- most of what you're shouting at me on the website. So Rachel Elno is our guest. I'm horrified and fascinated equal parts by this getting all of the poultry indoors so every farmer in the country and anybody who keeps poultry has been ordered to lock them down amazingly enough um for the for the foreseeable future because of because of avian flu i believe it and farmers are are being told and and, and they've had to do this to to call even healthy birds to uh prefer uh, to, to to prevent them from uh, becoming um, infected, but these, these uh, this, I don't like to be sensationalist. I don't like to be tabloid, but these are evil policies, aren't they? <laughs> well, scarcity. Uh, this is the thing we're yeah. dealing with. We're dealing with capitalists and big corporations, and being in having been in that world of business, capitalism depends on scarcity. Because if there's an abundance of anything, you can't control people and you can't control prices. So it's essential for them to create scarcity, scarcity of energy, scarcity of food, so that if people are hungry, they will obey. If people are cold, they will obey or they're more likely to obey. So scarcity is one thing that they absolutely need to create. So what better way of creating scarcity than culling? saying, oh, we've got to destroy all of these yeah. uh, chickens. Oh, but you can eat insects. That's the latest thing. Yeah, that's right. Don't worry. You can have a plant-based burger made, grown in a laboratory. Even you know, today. So- so, sorry to interrupt, Rachel. To, today, we saw for the first time ever blood grown in a laboratory injected into the arms of volunteers. This is this is blood. They said they're doing this, and I'm sure they are. I'm sure, you know, at the base level, I'm sure the scientists mean well. But we know what comes after these things. But they've grown blood for the first time in a lab. Um, and, and the reason they're doing this, they say, is because there, there are obviously rare blood types, and that can be a problem if um, somebody goes to hospital and needs a transfusion. So that's something that's happened for the first time ever. And again, maybe it's because you know, doing this type of show, it creeped me out this morning to hear that, you know, that somebody has had 
blood injected into them that had been made in a lab. It hasn't come from from another person. Just just to throw that in there, that's another one of these things that they give you benevolent, um, you, you know, reasons for doing these things. They always do that. Like it's like when with, with uh, you know, with the with the bionic arms and the replacement limbs. Yeah, who could argue against that? But then you think of where that might ultimately lead. And you talk about the the insects there. Somebody said to me last week, Ah, oh, Richie, Matt Hancock going into the into the jungle. <laughs> maybe this is um, we're going to see Hancock eat some insects in the Australian jungle, and maybe at some stage, maybe uh, maybe six months down the line. When they're introducing these things, or a year, Hancock will be brought out front and centre and he will say, well, you know, I had to do this in Australia. And to be honest with you, I lost a bit of weight and I felt quite good and it, it all sounds so mad. But you just, <laughs> you just don't know, do you, where these things are going? The thing is that the further we move away from nature, the more dark and satanic things get. And so my feeling increasingly, we have to switch off our digital devices and get back in tune with nature because if we're in harmony with nature and if we're doing things in 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 the most natural way possible eating healthy organic food keeping healthy keeping our immune systems healthy that is the way to live an abundant healthy prosperous life the more that things are artificial and done in laboratories and we move away from our natural eating into eating things that humans aren't designed to eat insects, lizards are, you know. Yeah. So, so the, the further we deviate from nature, the more we are going down a satanic path. And that is the truth of it. And a lot of this, what is happening is very, very evil in my humble opinion. It was great to catch up with you again today, Rich. It's been a long time. Before we say goodbye, good luck with the campaigning. And I have a feeling there, there, an election will be called in the spring. I have a feeling, it, yeah, that, that doesn't make me a, you know, a world-class predictor of things. But I just, I thought we might get one before Christmas. I think it'll be pretty soon in the new year. So you might be in action sooner than you think. But just before you do go, remind us on the 17th, which is a week on Thursday, tell us about the meeting. Yes, so doors open at 6.30pm for a 7pm start. It's at Bakewell Town Hall. All are welcome. And yeah, please come along and add your voice to the debate. Rachel, really enjoyed speaking with you again today. Good luck and God bless. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Richie. Bye for now. Bye for now. Rachel Elnor, live on the Richie Allen Show, Monday's programme, November 7th. You'll find Rachel on YouTube. It's E-L-N-A-U-G-H. You knew that anyway. But I'm just telling you. And the Freedom Alliance uh, Party, I know you've you know who, who, who they are, but again, later on, I'll put links on, on the live comment page, just in case you don't. All the best to all concerned there. Uh, the time. That's me again. Why am I doing that? The wrong bloody fader. It's, um, the time is three and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Going to take a tune. When I come back, I'll be reading your comments. Thank you for them. They are plentiful. There are lots of them. And don't forget, a little bit later, Jenny Lowe's will be live, not too much later, about 10 minutes time in fact. Jenny will be live on the line from Portugal. This is um, The Mock Turtles. The song is called Can You Dig It? 
colds, seasonal flu and respiratory diseases, a nuisance, but we all get them. Now more than ever, it is essential to have a robust immune system. Inspired by the Zelenko Protocol, Immunex 365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. As a special launch offer to UK listeners of The Richie Allen Show, you will receive a discount of 15% by using the code RichieAllen365 at checkout. Go to immunex365.co.uk to get yours now and with free two-day track delivery. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. Hey, I better address this. I've had a couple of emails, more than a couple in fact, and I saw a couple of comments on the live comment and it's about me running ads. Uh, One or two people expressing incredulity that I would run ads. Of course I'll run an ad. If I am asked to run an ad and I like the person and the product and it's ethical, of course I would. Why wouldn't I? Um, I used to run ads before. I ran uh, an ad for a data recovery service. Uh, The lovely Chris, a great pal and a great supporter. I ran other ads over the years from time to time when I could get them. Why wouldn't I run ads? And I had a couple of emails, two in particular, one from somebody called Claire Nolan. How you doing, Claire? And from Ali Sheridan. I don't know if Ali's a man or a woman, but it's spelled A-L-Y. So I'm guessing it's, it's, it's a bloke asking me, why would I criticise Alex Jones for pushing super male vitality pills and stuff like that? And then why would I run an ad for vitamins? Well, the fact of the matter is, there's a huge difference. I don't push anything. I don't endorse anything. I never have done. You might remember me telling you, and it's totally true, that um, over the years I've turned down quite a significant amount of money to endorse things personally. Because I just wouldn't do that ever, because I would expect nothing less than you just fall out with me. And I mean this, and that you wouldn't trust me ever again. I don't endorse anything. Um, one guy in California wanted me to endorse his product and he was a nice guy I said I can't do that I said why don't you make an ad and I'll run it because I like the product and he said well why don't you endorse it I said I can't do that it's wrong I'm a news guy I can't endorse products no matter how much money you throw I mean I'm not trying to big myself up here I am a bit of a bastard (laughs) in other aspects of my life but I could never do that what Alex did, and I didn't like it, and I told Alex Jones this years ago when I was um, in, in touch with him, he pushed a lot of products that, for my money, whether the products were good or bad or indifferent, didn't make a blind bit of difference. He shouldn't have been doing that. But he saw the dollar signs, and off he went. So um, the product I'm advertising at the moment, which I'm not endorsing, I'm advertising it because um, I was asked to by a really nice guy called Eamon. In, in Ireland and it's a supplement it's an immunity support supplement right and, and it's very heavily regulated this particular business and his product does what it says on the tin it does what it claims to do so of course I'll take Eamon's money and advertise his product on the programme but I won't tell you you have to have it but I'll do that incidentally Eamon the guy who's running the ad um, and I know this he is a contributor financially to the independent media he spends some money with um, other independent content creators. So he's a good bloke. 
That's what it is. So you listen to the ad. If you want uh, uh, an immunity support supplement, you have a listen and it's up to you what you do with it. But don't be criticising me for running the ad. Jesus wept. <laughs> Are we communists? Of course I'm going to run the ad. But uh, he's a good guy. Is, is Amy, that's all I'm saying. I would endorse him, but I, I wouldn't endorse any product. So there you are. Uh, his website is immunex365.co.uk. I W M U N E X 365.co.uk. Just made me laugh. I suppose it's because I haven't run any advertisement for God knows how long. It's probably three years since I had an ad. I'm wide open, by the way. If you'd like to place your product on the program, please get in touch with me. Okay, the rates are very favourable. They really are. And um, all you got to do is make a decent radio ad and I'll run it for you. But I won't tell people they should use your product. I can't do that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. You hypocrite. You criticised Alex. I did. And I was right. And I stand by my criticism of Alex. Um, God love him. Scaramouche says, the climate hoax problem, reaction solution, geoengineering, uh, using the technology to create the problem, judging the reaction of the people, and then taxing the hell out of them. And then use the tech that caused the problem as the solution. uh, And that will lead to bigger problems, he says. There are so many comments on this, and so many of them are saying the same thing. And I'm in agreement with you about why this is happening and where it's going. Alex says, Rachel was describing with the problems in the movement is a known thing. These issues in the movement, says Alex. In order for a movement to keep up its own momentum, it has to eat itself and its members alive. So they call people shills and traitors and hypocrites, etc. It happened in the French Revolution and in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, etc. Jean Anne said to me, envy is a better word maybe than jealousy. I think she's right. There's a lot of envy. I saw this working in London, in the People's Voice television studios in London, in Brent, when I moved from Spain to be part of that. I had never seen anything like it in my life. Envy, jealousy. People who came to work on that for their own reasons, because they wanted to be on air, and then they couldn't be because they didn't have the talent or the experience or the skill set or whatever, and were offered, you know, other roles in production... And some of them did everything they could to bring it down from within. I witnessed this with my own eyes. I've never seen anything like it. Why do I love doing what I do today uh, at six minutes past the hour? I'll tell you why I love it more than anything. Because there is me, I, Misha, that's the Irish word for myself, myself and nobody else. There's the great Paul Ripley when I need some engineering, when I need some website work done. There's the equally great Hayden Hewitt. But I answer to nobody. I don't have producers, editors, researchers. Sometimes it would be a blessing if I did, but I don't. I don't have to put up with anybody. As for envy, there isn't anybody to envy me. And as for external envy, I couldn't give an arse because it doesn't interfere with what I do. Um, We're going to get Jenny on. I'm really looking forward to this. Let's get her on straight away because we're we're running out of time. We're not running out of time, but time just flies. Let me stop, stop. What are you doing, Richie? <laughs> I'm a plonker. I was calling Rachel again. That's the sort of Egypt thing that I kind of do sometimes on the radio show. Look, let's welcome back to the programme a vastly experienced nurse 
She's done it all. She's recruited for the NHS. She's worked as a nurse in the NHS. She has trained nurses all uh, over a 20-year period. These days, she's based in Portugal. She's got a website that you really should check out. It's called Genius.Life. That is spelled J-E-N-I-U-S dot life. Let's welcome back to the programme uh, our friend Jenny Lowe's. Welcome back, Jenny. How are you? Hi, Richie. I'm I'm more or less. I'm about getting there now. You're getting there. You had a touch of the old COVID last week, you think? Well, I think so, although I didn't test. But um, I've lost my taste and sense of smell, so I guess that it fits the symptoms of COVID. It might well be, but thankfully you're all right and you're back up and running. i got to start with this. Am I right in understanding that the Royal College of Nurses have done something unprecedented. Now, we know they have voted to take strike action uh, on pay and conditions, and as a trade unionist, I totally support them 100%. That's not an issue at all. But it's no small thing if it is indeed the first time in the history of the union that they've decided to do that. This is a big deal, Jenny, right? Uh, Yeah, it is a big deal. And I think that over times when I worked in the NHS, strike was talked about, but it was something that not many nurses had an appetite to do. And obviously, they're striking over pay and conditions. But I, I think what's more important is the way that they've let the NHS rot over the last two and a half years. And they haven't spoken out and been vocal about uh, the stupid policies that they put in place that have really uh, damaged a lot of trust within the NHS. And we talked about this, but it was almost two years ago, I think now, that um, it seemed like the NHS were trying to destroy itself from the inside out and strike will just lower confidence and patients will suffer, unfortunately. Some nurses did, and I and I know I know you weren't in bracketing all nurses in, you know, when you were saying that they didn't speak out. Some did. And they were dealt with. I mean, in terms of we've spoken to some of them on the programme, Tracy McCallum, I could name others, and they were hammered. I mean, even in the press, in the national press, for being lunatic conspiracy theorists. So I suppose that would have said to other nurses who might have wanted to speak up about the ridiculous policies as you described them, it would have said to those nurses, I tell you what, keep your bloody head down, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely there were nurses speaking out, and I congratulate every single one of them that did. But there was a vast majority that didn't, and a lot of them were gagged by non-disclosure agreements. Um, I know that for a fact because I spoke to a few old colleagues right at the beginning and kind of offered to be a bit of their voice if they had stories that they wanted to pass through me and that I could um, speak out, because obviously I'm not tied in with any contractual NHS um, contracts or anything like that. So, and a few of them got back to me and said, um, we can't talk about anything because we've had to sign non-disclosure agreements. So that's why a lot of people didn't speak out in the beginning. And also, like you say, they vilified anybody that did, whether they were from the medical community or the scientific community or nursing or physiotherapists, or there, there were lots of different, obviously, organisations within the NHS and different specialities. And on the whole, it was quiet, although there wasn't really many avenues for people to speak out safely. And the whistleblowing policies obviously haven't haven't done anything to allow people to speak out about policies that were happening in their own hospitals that were clearly putting patients at risk. And uh, also the nursing staff at risk as well in the medical profession, because in my opinion, because of the policies that they introduced in a lot of places, meant that nurses and doctors weren't able to maintain their ethical code of practice. Um, 
and the you know the NMC Code of Professional Practice for Nurses uh, says that they should be advocates for their patients. They should use evidence-based practice. Uh, there's lots of different parts of the code that were trampled all over because of the the policies that they put into place because of COVID. Let's go go back to the time before COVID. So let's go back a year beforehand. So we, we know that over a 30-year period, half the beds in UK hospitals disappeared. We, we know that. We know that nursing numbers have declined progressively um, over that time period as well, and doctor numbers. So what that says to me, as somebody who knows nothing about the profession, is that being a nurse must have become progressively difficult over the years. I mean, does that relate to your own experiences? Give us, to use that blooming American term, garden variety, give us a kind of a a standard day for a nurse working on a ward, let's say um, a respiratory infection ward, let's say even a a paediatric ward. What sort of, what, what was life like working um, in the system, in the service, while it was logistically just becoming insane with beds disappearing and you being short-handed all the time. Give us a kind of an idea of what it was like. Well, I can only go by the experience from where I worked, but which was Peterborough Hospital. And the job that I used to do, I used to cover all the different wards. So I worked for critical care outreach, which meant that I visited sick patients on every different department. And I can honestly say that nurses, they do work hard and they have a very heavy workload. But what's happened over the last probably 10 or 15 years is that paperwork and audits and all the stuff that takes the patient, the nurse away from the bedside has increased. And also the, the nurses working in a department don't have as much say and flexibility anymore as they used to. So uh, say, for example, 15 years ago, you were on duty and someone phoned in sick you could just phone your colleague and say, are you available to come in today? Yeah, okay, we'll put you down and we'll we'll pay you the extra hours. And as time went on, as financial squeeze came more and more apparent, you had to jump through 10 different hoops just to be able to get a nurse to come and work um, a shift. And in the end, that nurse might end up being an agency nurse that was paid four times as much as the standard rate and that they didn't know the department. And it just all the different things they put in place to try and save money and streamline actually probably ended up costing more money and wasn't as good at the end of the day for the patient. But where I worked, most of the most of the wards did 12 or 13 hour shifts. And honestly, during the shifts that I worked, there wouldn't be hardly any time to be able to sit down and finish your paperwork. You'd end up having to stay extra time to do things. There'd be a whole list of things that wouldn't get done that you'd have to hand over to the next shift. Um, And then there simply wasn't enough of them. So in some uh, countries, they have a minimum staffing ratio, but the UK has fallen way short of that. So say, for example, on a respiratory ward, you might have one nurse that's looking after 12 or 16 patients. And a respiratory ward, you've probably got, I don't know, half of those patients that are on intravenous antibiotics. Some of them are on um, additional ventilatory support. You've got relatives that don't have as strict or that didn't have as strict visiting hours. Obviously, now that's changed a little bit. Um, But in the old days, there used to be quite strict visiting hours where the relatives would come in and be with the the patients. But those kind of got relaxed and there'd be more visiting. So that would also put more strain on the nursing staff that are working. And I know that there's a lot of um, 
dissatisfaction with the health service and quite rightly so because they are destroying it i mean people can't get doctor's appointments people aren't being followed up in inside the targets uh people are not being operated on operations are being cancelled people are being discharged from hospital into the community where they probably needed to stay in hospital for a bit longer and the um population is getting sicker so Every year on year, the population is getting more and more, com- have have more and more comorbidities that impact on that patient's stay when they're in hospital. So in the past, you might have had someone that came in for a, an appendicitis, they'd have their appendix removed and then in two or three days, they're probably well enough to go home. But now, even the young young people that are coming in with, say, for example, an appendicitis, they have additional comorbidities. They might be obese, already have breathing problems. So the, there's always an added strain onto the, the NHS, the acute services, just for that very reason alone. But also during that time, they cut a lot of the community funded like nursing home places and they privatised all the nursing home sector, maybe 20 25 years ago, where in the past there were a lot of nursing homes that were run by the NHS, but they're not anymore. And they've cut those places. So you get patients in hospital that really could probably be being discharged to a a different care facility, but they're not able to because the beds aren't there. So nursing staffing ratios is definitely a huge problem. And it's been something that's been talked about for a long time that we should have minimum ratios. And, you know, you can't look after 12 patients as well as you can look after six it's just not physically possible and sometimes you can be busy all day just with one patient because they're very sick and that obviously takes away that nurse from other patients so there isn't as much flexibility in the NHS today in terms of staffing as they used to be and also the nursing sisters the matrons they don't have as much say as they used to have even though they reintroduced all the modern matrons again it wasn't quite in the same role as it was 20, 25 years previously. And the $64 million question is these negative changes. I mean, going back, I mean, it staggers me. You talked about a few minutes ago how you are a nurse down and you could call a colleague and say, right, there's there's some hours going and you'll get some overtime, come in. This was abolished. And then an agency nurse would get the hours and would be paid four times as much. Presumably the agency is getting paid as well. Now that stinks that because you think about lobbying, you think about brown envelopes and, you know, some of these agencies obviously influencing political policies and all of that. So all of these things, the question is bad management and mistakes or deliberate policy designed to wreck the service. And and I know binary choice is not something we should really do. There are shades of grey to everything. But that's what people will be thinking. Is it just some bad people doing some silly things because they don't know any better? Or was there method in the madness in terms of destroying, you know, nursing? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest with you. And I think they they cut a lot of the training places and they changed the way in which nurses trained. Although they've reintroduced different ways for nursing to train again now, they've kind of gone back to the old uh, enrolled nurses now with the, um, what are they called? I think they're, I can't remember what they're called. Are they apprenticeships now? Where they've got people that are working on the job that they then will train and they will um, qualify to become a nurse with some university time. 
but in the past they, they've changed a lot of the way that nurses have been recruited um, and definitely they've added more layers of management in so in the past you would have a ward sister you'd have a couple of deputy sisters and then you'd have um, the main bulk of the workload would be your staff nurses and the ward sister would be the one that would be in charge of basically what was happening in her ward but then they've lay layered extra managers in extra more senior people and they all have to report to the person above them and then as well the government intervention in streamlining policies and guidelines and different ways in which people work is also coming from the top down so the people on the the actual grassroots level that are doing the work they don't have as much say as they used to have in how their departments were run and the a lot of the managers as well aren't clinical so when you get up to kind of chief executive level most of those chief executives that are in place haven't don't even have a background in health yeah. they have a background in finances or in economy or something like that so it's always about trying to save money but in the long run they seem to spend more money and services don't really services improve don't that get much. any better here's the question and outcomes you. don't change yeah. and outcomes don't change Speaking to an American lady who lives around here um, a short time ago, a, a nice lady with no edge to her whatsoever, and she spent a bit of time uh, some months ago, I think, just, just around the beginning of the summer, with her mother who was unwell, and she was in one of the Northwest hospitals, I won't mention which one, and this very kindly American lady who's lived here for some years, she said, the impression I got, she said, spending several days there when my mother was in a, a critical condition and she said I don't even know how to phrase this she said I got the impression that a lot of the staff there didn't give a damn they just didn't care that we were an inconvenience of course I pressed her on that obviously I wouldn't let her away with that I said come on you know they're under pressure you, you know they don't have the numbers they need I, I, I've got to imagine most of these are, are nice people and she said I wonder is there a different type of person, human being, getting into nursing as opposed to years ago? I'm 47. We would have thought when I was in school that nursing was a vocation. That's wrong. And you can punch me in the face for saying that. It's a profession and nurses should be paid properly. But we always felt that certain people would gravitate towards those jobs. And those people would be the loveliest people. You know, people who loved people, who were perfect for caring for people, for doing things for people when they're at their most vulnerable. We always kind of thought that. I remember being in hospital in the 1980s with severe pneumonia in both lungs. And the nurses were just amazing there. You know, it was like I was a blood relative, really. The, the sort of care that I would have gotten. And this lady said, she said, I wonder if that's kind of gone away from the profession. What do you think of that? I think it has a bit because I think that the people that work in it have become so ground down and they've become, you know, like your employer wants a pound of flesh from you and more. And I think that's representative in a lot of different professions like the police force and teaching as well and nursing and uh, being a doctor too. Yeah. I think there are still some exceptional nurses and doctors out there. I think that people have it's almost the way in which society's kind of changed over the last 10 or 15 years, in my view, is that people just seem to care less generally, like not just the nursing or the health profession, but people just seem to give, you know, less of a shit now. It's like yeah. everybody's apathetic and hooked into the screen on their phone and they're more interactive with that than they are with other people. Um, 
And like anything, there's good and bad in everything. But one of the things that we used to do when we interviewed people was we we try and understand how how much empathy somebody has and how good they are at caring because actually caring for someone is an art like medicine is an art really it's a, it's an art of caring for somebody not everybody can do it and not everybody has the stomach for it yeah. and the way in which they've changed how nurses are um educated may have something to do with it because in the old days you might work as a healthcare assistant and your your senior would see that you had something in you that would make make you a good nurse, like you're showing that you're going to be a good nurse. And they would encourage you to go through the process of becoming a nurse, either through the enrolled um, nurse programme. And then it turned to be a diploma profession. And now it's now it's a graduate profession. So I don't know whether some nurses go into it just wanting to have a degree at the end of it and they don't necessarily want to put the hard work in. Or it's just the way in which society is kind of going, you know, like you see people stepping over people and not giving a, yeah. a shit in day to day life. And, yeah. uh, you know, in the, in the nursing and medical profession, absolutely, you should have people that care and that have a, a good heart and a good soul that don't want to see anybody suffering. And there are still good people like that. And the hospitals have become difficult places to work. And I'm not excusing it because there is absolutely no excuse whatsoever. And I think think that people are tied by the way in which the services now run and people are just getting squeezed from all directions aren't they it's uh yeah, it's hard yeah. i mean people listening to this who i mean we'll talk in a few minutes about what it is you're doing today because it's relevant to something you said a few minutes ago when you said people are sicker the the, the nation nations are sicker than ever before and you're right of course to talk about that and the kid going in with appendicitis has got comorbidities so we'll definitely come back to that it's my belief and this is as a journalist you're the expert because you've worked at every level of the service it's my belief that covid and the mess left over because they became a covid service and ignored lots of other very important things is going to lead on to the eventuality and I think it'll be soon too whereby we're going to be told that things we could have expected to be covered on the NHS are no longer covered. I think we're going to be told fairly soon that these are things you can't get on the NHS anymore you're going to have to pay and I would even go as far as to say I think it won't be too long before you might get a quota of doctor visits and they might say after your quota maybe a couple of times a year maybe you'll have to pay. I think they're going to start farming out even more things to the private sector. And that's going to be disastrous for, obviously, for the for, for people less off than, than we are. I see that coming fairly soon, Jenny, next couple of years. Am I wrong? Please tell me I'm wrong. I think what might come first is a, a nominal fee, you know, if you go to see your GP or if you turn up in A&E, which is actually what happens here in Portugal. So, if you go to A&E, I think it's something like eight euros you have to pay, but you it can be waived. So if you don't have the money and you say, I can't pay, then you don't have to pay. So they and they don't ever follow it up or chase it up or anything. So I know people that have rocked up in A&E and the last thing that they thought about taking was their, their purse to pay. And then they don't get any follow up. But I think that will be probably be the first introduction into uh, part paying for the NHS. But the ethos of the NHS, I think, absolutely should be protected at all costs in that 
the NHS should be free at the point of care. And by free, it doesn't necessarily mean like not actually handing over any money, but it should be free and accessible to everybody, regardless of underlying conditions or anything like that or lifestyle or it should be free for everybody at the point of care regardless of how much money that you earn um, and I don't agree that people should have to start paying a part or if they have their quota of visits and they go over their quota of visits I don't agree that people should be because we are already essentially paying for it it's that it's being mismanaged at a massive level and it's so so deep the mismanagement the financial mismanagement of the nhs and when you look at all the pfis and the the foundation trusts that became and all all of that and the, all the new hospitals that are being built but the nhs trusts are paying for them out of their own pockets rather than it coming from a central place um that the we should absolutely protect the nhs because it should be free to everybody and it should be um, you should be getting a good service. But the fact is, at the moment, is that people aren't getting a good service when they go to the NHS for things. Yes, people will say, oh, I had cancer and they saved my life or I had an accident and they saved my life. But the way that the NHS is set up in primary care and secondary and tertiary care is that it's not set up for healing. It's not set up in any way, really, for you to optimise your health and to function at the highest level that you can. They are essentially the mouthpiece of pharma and they are doing pharma's work really on the whole is that they are, people come in with symptoms of a disease, they get diagnosed as a, a disease and then they get given a, a set course of treatment that has been apparently proven that it's the best co course of treatment for yeah. them. But that's the only option that they have. They don't have any other options. And like you said, with the work that I'm doing now is that the patients that I'm working with, or the clients I'm working with, is the aim is to get them optimised and to a level where they don't ever have to attend like acute care because we're trying to solve the problems before it gets too late. And, it, you know, NHS acute care is kind of reactionary. You're waiting for a problem to happen and then you're dealing with it rather than trying to deal with whatever the underlying root causes that develops, leads you to develop that condition. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah understand I do. I mean? And, I, and I want to stay with this. Um, just park it for 30 seconds because you said there a, a, a moment ago about um, do doctors. What you described is fairly chilling, but I've seen it in action, that the patient enters the surgery and sits down with the doctor who's given I think somewhere between five and ten minutes to get them moved on before the next patient they describe the symptoms you are absolutely right there is a protocol the doctor must follow I know this I've seen it in action and I can, again being 47 I can remember going to Dr Audrey Farrell in Waterford City as a young boy and she was under no um, such restrictions she would spend a half an hour, 35, 40 minutes with patients if they needed it. And she wasn't bound by protocol. She would determine based on her own experience and her own knowledge as to what the best way forward was. And it's amazing to think that that way of practicing medicine is gone now, that the doctor is sitting there with the computer waiting to be told, well, this is the protocol, follow that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, in the old days, it wasn't that long ago, like you say, that you went to your family doctor and your family doctor knew you and your family and they dealt with you many times. And they could look at your symptoms in a broader context of your kind of overall life and they could advise you one way or another. 
And like you say now, you go into hospital with angina, you are on a pathway that you are given specific treatments for angina, or you go to the doctors with a new um, type 2 diabetes, they give you a, a prescribed way of having to deal with that. And, you know, alternative therapies or ways in which of managing a condition, they aren't really explored. The first thing they do is write a prescription. And most people are happy with that. They go to their doctors, they're not feeling well. The doctor says, I think it's this. They write you a prescription and you leave the doctor's surgery already feeling better because you think that the prescribed course that you're given is going to, uh, to help cure you. you. Yeah. But you don't, you're not given any other options. You know, like um, my aunt recently had her bloods checked and she has very high cholesterol. The first thing that the GP wants to do is to put her on a statin. And there are lots of things that she could do before she needs to go on a statin. And statins are not without side effects. So you could be giving a medication for something that then gives people secondary side effects. So then you've then got to deal with the secondary side effects as well as the primary problem in the first place. And let me interrupt Whereas, you there. Let me interrupt. So what would you say to your aunt then? Would you, would you have, I suppose you'd have um, probably, knowing you, probably several approaches like dietary and stuff like that before statins? Yeah, dietary, stress management. There are different herbal preparations that you can go on that you can help lower your cholesterol. But dietary and stress management and exercise, they're the top three, really. But your GP might say to you, you need to exercise more, but they're not going to help you with a plan to get you exercising because you might not have exercised for 10 years or you might not know where to start. You know, people sometimes don't know where to start. So, you know, definitely... Um, there's lots of different conditions with the same kind of um, concept applied. And I have here in Portugal, they actually do, the doctors do seem to um, encourage a little bit more of like alternative non-pharmaceutical ways of managing. So my neighbour here has been having lots of problems with her ears and her throat. She's had a like a chronic infection in her throat. And she went to see a private ENT doctor recently who also works for the health service. And she's actually referred her to the thermal hospital that we have here to have like a series of inhalation therapies to try and clear her upper airways rather than antibiotics, more antibiotics. So there are still doctors around that will look at alternatives. But when you've only got five or 10 minutes to yeah, yeah. Uh, to take a history and then to decide a course of action, it's not that's not set up for healing at all. And, and even, you know, you go into the doctor's surgery and I, I feel like this when I go to the doctors, if I ever go, is that you're almost like inconveniencing them because you know that they're busy. And you don't want to tell them everything that it may or may not be relevant to to your condition at the time. So it's not set up. It's the same with hospitals. If you're in hospital and you're really sick and the nurses are busy and they're rushing around and they don't seem like they have much time to stand and talk to you or to give you just five minutes of their time, then it's not a very conducive environment to healing at all, really, is it? Because you're just you feel like you're inconveniencing people and that you're um like a burden i guess and and people shouldn't be feeling like that hospitals should be a comfortable place to go not somewhere where people think it's you know horrible and scary and that they might come out worse than when they went in well said christine has been on by the way you're listening to jenny lowe's you can find uh, all you need to know about Jenny on the website Genius J E N I U S. It's J E N I U S dot life. 
Um, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Christine has been on. Richie, my old dad used to say once, um, having worked at Merck uh, for a while, he said the healthcare system is unfortunately, quote, make you sick, keep you sick, unquote. I have said to my son, you are never undiagnosed in the NHS. That's uh, from Christine. Is there anything good to be said? Now, I don't think there is, but, but, but this is not about me, it's about you. Is there any redeeming qualities when, when, when it comes to talking about GlaxoSmithKline and, and Merck and Pfizer? Have they anything going for them? Or are they, as our listeners seem to think, just um, massive corporations only interested in keeping us medicated for the rest of our lives? Is that all they are? I think there are some pharmaceuticals that we would be very difficult to get rid of, if you know what I mean. Like we, that, for some conditions, a pharmaceutical might be our primary option, especially when a person is in an acute phase of an illness. And it, the pharmaceutical agents, they do serve a purpose to a point, and but they're now they're always our first line is or not my first line but you know in the medical profession it's the first line of treatment is a pharmaceutical agent to give to a person there is a place and i think that hopefully in the future we are going to go more towards a holistic model and kind of a return to how things were before pharma got their dirty hands on everything and I think that there will be a period where there's going to be a bit of a crossover where we do need pharmaceuticals for management while people are healing and getting better. So I think that there will be like two tiers where we have um, pharmaceutical agents when we need them in emergencies or for acute situations or in certain conditions. And there hopefully will become more of a crossover into the more holistic kind of therapies and modalities of healing that we've used for thousands of years I'm hoping that that will start to become more and more prevalent within our health service as well because at the moment they're way behind they are way way behind um, the way in which people are looking at medicine now especially like functional medicine integrative medicine the NHS model is like miles behind that said if you fell off a roof and broke your back or you yeah, yeah. Uh, got your leg trapped under a car, there isn't any alternatives at the moment. No. And, you know, the NHS serves a purpose for for that. But it's the chronic conditions that we need to really get on top of because it probably adds up to almost 90% of the expenditure within the NHS is dealing with chronic conditions. And most of those chronic conditions, like we've discussed before, you can... Um, improve in different ways and you don't always have to revert to the pharma you know model here's so. a question you're 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 not going to like but uh, you will i think you'll enjoy talking about it maybe um and look we'll 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 do a program if not before christmas with your permission early in the new year when we'll talk in more detail about the things that you're working on at the moment because they are of huge interest to our listeners but the pressing stuff today was obviously the strike and the state of the NHS. This has been really good, Jenny. Thanks for this today. It's very good, this. Jenny Lowe's is a vastly experienced nurse, worked for many, many years in the NHS as a critical care nurse, as a recruiter and as a trainer. That's very impressive. So we've been talking about these things. Listen, I, I genuinely am a Bolivarian socialist, free at the point of... Ah, yeah, there you are. Was I gone for a minute? I was. 
I pressed. No, the... I, I can still hear you. Oh, you can still hear me. I, I think, I think I took myself off air momentarily because I'm a bit of an idiot like that. I've got this new setup, Jenny, and it's um, it's still confusing me just a little bit. Um, I was going to ask you. Um, so yeah, so I, I gave the preamble. For me, free to everybody, regardless of what you have in your bank balance, I will always be like that. I have great compassion for people with various comorbidities and various. Um, challenges in terms of their fitness and their physical fitness and all of that. This is who I am. However, there are some people, and some of them listen to this programme, and they say, Richie, obesity and smoking like an absolute chimney, uh, these are choices. And when the National Health Service or the Portuguese Health Service or the Irish Health Service is in dire straits and fit to capacity, full to capacity, and all of that. Well, make those who don't look after themselves, who who just do not look after themselves, and as a consequence of not looking after themselves, they've become ill, make them pay a little bit. And maybe it might give them a kick in the backside and they might take their own personal health a bit more seriously. And I'm sure you've heard this argument before, but it's popping up all the time now as we're looking at a winter of discontent with strikes everywhere, with no money. People are saying, listen, when people make themselves sick, you know, make them pay. What do you think? Well, I think that you could argue that they already pay with the extra taxes that they're paying on food and cigarettes and alcohol and things like that. But uh, I, I don't agree with that because I think that if you start to open that can of worms, you can apply it to almost every illness that at some stage a person has uh, either engaged in a lifestyle that maybe wasn't healthy for them or they didn't eat well or they've lived in a perpetual state of stress for the last 20 years and could they have helped themselves and you, you know I think that it, it's a bit of a slippery slope argument Agreed. but I understand why people say it but you could you also then apply it to people who do risky sports and um, people who make different lifestyle choices. I, I don't know. I think it's one of the, it's a bit of a grey area, isn't it? That's a great answer, I, Jenny, about the sport. If you're stupid enough to be going mountaineering at the weekend and you fall and break your, I don't know, collarbone, don't come crying to us. It's your own fault. That's a great argument, that. And I don't agree but it, with it. Um, yeah. It's a safety net, isn't it? The yeah. NHS and the all the health services. It's a safety net for people. And if it wasn't there... We need to be catching people before they fall. And what's happening is that those patients that end up in hospital that are 30 stone and that can't move, the, you know, the, the point was missed probably 15, 20 years before where you could have intervened and it wouldn't have got to the point where they were taking up beds in an acute service. And that that's what we need to look at with the NHS and the way in which it's run is that prevention and health promotion is very it's like the poor sister of acute care and but that's where we save the money because you know there's always a reason why and it always started somewhere and maybe someone got to be ridiculously obese because they had a terrible abusive childhood and food was their comfort and you know are we going to penalize those people because they they weren't looked after and supported early on or should we actually be talking about, well, how can we help people like in an early stage so that it doesn't get to the point where they well are said. a big 
drain on services. Well said, Jenny. Well said. And listen, if I'm going off in tangents here that you didn't really want to talk about and you wanted to talk, <laughs> no, do. But I always do this because I don't get too many opportunities to speak to somebody who's had the experience that you've had. Here's another one I'm going to throw at you. Um, speaking of Peter Hitchens and 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 his and his ilk, Hitchens has banged the drum for many many years that addiction is a fantasy, that it's a choice. And they, they, they dragged up, the, the, the mail dragged up, didn't it, uh, last week, an old interview, not an interview, Hitchens was on a panel show and Matthew Perry from Friends was on the panel show and Perry was going through or had just gone through a bit of a crisis with uh, substance abuse and Hitchens said, no such thing as addiction, you make a choice to have that drink, you make a choice to have, um, to have that um, cocaine or whatever. And before you give me your learned answer on this, I, over the years, have had periods where I've drank very heavily. I'm, I've always admitted this. I've never had a drink during the day. I've never had to drink <laughs> to get up out of bed. I've never had to do that. But I'm an after-work uh, drinker, and sometimes it goes over the top. I have had a very difficult time in my life growing up. I would never use that excuse. I can stop any time I bloody well want. So I don't. I'm not saying I agree with Hitchens, but there is a part of me that says... Maybe there's some kind of tiny merit to that argument. What do you think? Addiction? Is it a real illness? Is it a genuine illness? Or are we letting addicts away with murder and we should be saying, listen, just stop doing it? It's it's a real... Addictions are real in that people develop addictions because of dopamine. And dopamine is a chemical that people search for and they use addictive behaviors to increase their level of dopamine and then it become 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 something that takes over somebody's life and there's lots of reasons for that it could be there's there's genetic reasons where people are more um has that been proven now hang on to, to developing has has, has the, 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 yes it has okay there are certain genetic traits that may mean that you're more susceptible to developing addictive behaviours. And some of that may be to do with the way in which your brain uses dopamine and the neurochemicals in our brain. But I, I understand what you're saying. There becomes a point with a, with a behaviour where it becomes an addiction. And at that point, there are lots of things that people can do to modify their behaviour and to not develop into an addictive pathway. Uh, but it's multifactorial and it's very complex. And I don't think that addiction is just, you know, you can stop. And Peter Hitchens is and a bit of an arse. Stop, I think. Yes. He, he very much so is. He's a bit of an arse, yeah. What was he saying about the uh, vaccine refuse? <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think addiction is much more complex than... than... Have you gone again? No, I'm still there. I'm just an agent. Oh, was, yeah, I was just talking over you. My uh, apologies. I shouldn't do that. Go on. So, but it, again, it's about education and it's about support and it's about um, understanding the way in which behaviour works and how we are we are very much driven by choices and we are a bit of a slave to our neurotransmitters, really. And you know, if people understood really understood addiction, we would be able to tackle it you know, much earlier on. And this should be the sort of stuff that's taught in schools that about behaviour. And 
we're seeing it a lot now with uh, children that children are getting ad addicted behaviours very early on in life now because of the screens and the reward-based games that they're playing and th that kind of addictive behaviour. And they're not, they, their prefrontal cortex hasn't come online yet, so they don't really have any reasoning to be able to understand what's happening to them. So I fear that we're going to have much more of a problem with addictions in the coming generations than we've had in the past. But they'll just change. So it might not be that there'll be so many people that are alcoholics, but they, you might have a different addiction that arises that affects a person's life and the people around them. But I think that we're learning more and more about addictions all the time. And again, it's like one of these early things that you have to get in when you see somebody is starting to exhibit a, a form of behavior that could be damaging to them and people around them that we need to intervene at an early stage and get the support that they need and let's take alcoholism as an example alcoholism is terribly managed in the in the united kingdom and kind of all across the world really and not enough funding is put it put in to supporting people with alcohol addictions and it costs the nhs a huge amount of money and liver failure in a hospital is one of the worst ways that you could possibly choose to die. And again, they don't get in with the safety net early enough to make sure that these people don't get to that point. And then they become a real drain on resources and they end up costing a lot of money because we're not getting to them early enough. And it's the same with every, every dis-ease. If we got and we got in there early enough and we were looking after people and understanding like really what is the root cause of their behaviour or their illness or their addiction, then we'd be in a much better place. Great answer, Jenny. It's 11 minutes to the top of the hour. I'm going to throw another curveball at you. But before I do that, uh, Jenny Lowe's. Jenny <laughs> why Lowe's do you can, do this to me every time? Because I know, you, cause I know you'll have an answer. That's why it's good. Uh, Jenny can be found online at genius.life, J-E-N-I-U-S dot life. Uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want. and You shouldn't if you don't want to answer it. But I don't believe that... Um, we were seeing so many children on the so-called spectrum with autism. I don't believe that it is because we have become better at detecting and diagnosing autism. Now, I must put the caveat there, which is that I am not a professional. I don't really know much about anything, but I don't believe that. I believe, not because I want to believe, but because it's what I've seen, I believe that increasing the schedule of vaccinations and immunizations for children uh, uh, you know from a couple of jabs to maybe a dozen or more before the child is 15 i think this must be playing some part in autism it's too big a thing to ask you with about five minutes left to go but are you open to that possibility or do you dismiss it out of hand no, I'm definitely open to that possibility. I'm open to the possibility that any environmental toxin could be a factor in increasing rates of things like autism um, and other illnesses as well. And it, so it's not just vaccines, but it's the food that we eat. It's the food that mothers eat while they're pregnant or their mothers, actually, because uh, your health is more reliant on how your grandmother's health was when your mother was conceived because the eggs were already there. 
So this goes back like one, two, three generations of increasing environmental toxicity throughout, uh, especially the female line. And when the baby is in utero and then also when the baby is born and what the baby is exposed to through life, I think they all have an impact on the way in which our neurological system develops and how that exhibits in different illnesses in childhood or beyond. And it's undoubtable that you've got higher rates in more of the Western world. I also think that our continued and further push of electrification and of the planet and the electromagnetic atmosphere that we're in also plays a part. So I don't think it's just one thing, but I think that there are lots of contributing factors and also that genetics also plays a, fa- a part in that too. That's interesting you saying that about about food now and, you know, what the mother eats while pregnant because it didn't occur to me that, you know, eating food that might contain toxins within it might set off a neurological chain reaction in the fetus and the baby. But you think it's definitely possible? Oh, definitely. And when when you are pregnant, when you have a baby, the your body uses that a little bit as a cleanup system for the mother, so, but that gets transferred to the fetus as the baby is growing. So you could, for example, live next to a farmland that's being sprayed by glyphosate all the time. And you aren't outwardly affected, but the baby may further down the line or when the baby's born, uh, uh, problems might become apparent. So there definitely is like a toxic load that when you're growing a baby, that baby is developing at a rapid pace and you're using lots of cofactors and enzymes and proteins and all the things that that you need to build a body. And if you're, as a mother, if you're not um, optimised, then yeah, for sure that can pass down to the child. Right. That's why they often say that the when you have children, often your first child is the one that's more affected because the body uses pregnancy as a bit of a cleanup system for the for the mother. It's a it's a concept theory that's quite interesting. We saw that in the film Twins with Schwarzenegger and DeVito, didn't we? We thought absolute proof of that. <laughs> that's a terrible joke. Couple of quick comments. One from Craig who says it could be argued that the problem with a free service is that too many people do not use it responsibly, focused as they are on their right to use it whenever they feel. In my opinion, says Craig, the balance between right and responsibility has been lost along the way for far too many. That's really interesting. Isabel asks about the cost of living crisis in Portugal and, you know, the cost of central heating and wonders, as Portugal gets its gas or some of its gas from Algeria, is the situation a bit better there than it is here? That's a good question. Uh well, I mean, the the minimum wage here is 800 euros a month, 840 euros a month or something like that. And petrol at the moment is 190 cents per litre. So it's just as high as it is in the UK, if not higher. Worse. Yeah, it's worse. And then. obviously the climate's not as cold here, although in the north and inland it can get really cold during winter. But the, the cost of electricity hasn't gone up as much as it seems to in the UK and also Portugal has quite good energy independence. We do have a lot of uh, wind turbines and wave energy and different different forms. So they're they're quite they're probably more energy independent than the UK is. Very good. And just very quickly, sixty seconds before we finish up today, and thanks again for coming back. I really appreciate your time. 
just Craig's point, which is an interesting one. People focus a lot on their right to have it whenever they want, when sometimes maybe they could just be a bit more responsible about making that GP appointment. I think he's got a point there. Yeah, well, definitely. We all have a responsibility, for sure. And that's why I say this should be being taught in schools, because that's when you get kids, they grow into adults that then use health services. So we should be, this should be a grassroots education level of people being responsible for themselves. Come back again, will you, soon? If not before Christmas, I mean, if you want to do, by all means, but early in the new year. Uh, to talk you, more about the, the holistic approach and functional and integrative medicine because we need to do a bit more on that. Do, can I just say very quickly before we go? Anything you I'd, want, go ahead. I, I thought we might be talking about the pandemic no amnesty thing that's going around. So I wrote down five pages of points Christ. as to why we shouldn't be letting them have an amnesty and why it should be all about accountability and not about an amnesty. But anyway, we could talk about that at a different time. We can <laughs> talk about that this side of Christmas if you want. I mean, will will this stuff be, I don't know if it will be on, on Genius.life, will it? Uh, well, my, I've let my website go a little bit, actually, over the last few months, because I'm now, I'm living off grid now, and uh, I've moved house, and I'm living in the middle of a forest. So I've let my website go again. But I will, I'll probably do a post on it, and I'll put it on the website. Well, let's, um, let's schedule something then for the next couple of weeks then, and we'll get into that because it's obviously hugely important. But um, okay. with the nursing strike and, you know, people's fear about getting access to, to their services, um, so it's important to get into that as well today. But you never have enough time, do you? I mean, no. 45, nearly 50 minutes we've been speaking. We could speak for another two hours. Um, look, I'll be in touch with you tomorrow and we'll sort that out. And thanks okay. again, Jenny. Brilliant stuff. Thanks for today. All right. Thanks, Richie. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Jenny Lowe's there. Vastly experienced NHS nurse, trainer, recruiter, critical care, alive on the line from Portugal. We could get into that off-grid living as well. That's um, hugely interesting. Thanks to Rachel Elno uh, for uh, coming on in hour one. And good luck to, to Rachel with uh, with the politics and, and, and all of that. And the 17th. Uh, go to our YouTube channel to find out more about that that meeting on the 17th of November which is a week on Thursday and thanks again to Jenny back with you tomorrow at 5 o'clock UK time leaving you with the lightning seeds and change on your Richie Allen show take care of yourselves and one another until tomorrow enjoy the rest of your Monday it's bye from me bye now bye now